Michael. Hey, Diane. Michael, it's exactly two years from when the pandemic began for me, at least. I, I took my last trip to our Washington schools and had my last in-person meeting, and then we locked down. And I find myself in a pretty deep state of reflection on the past two years as I try to kind of reset my mindset to what it looks like to emerge into the world of, I guess, living with COVID, quote, post-pandemic, whatever that might be that we're moving into. I hear you, Diane. And how we mark this anniversary of our starts, if you will, to the pandemic, at least to me, feels in many ways trickier and more complicated than it did last year. You know, there's optimism out there once again in a sense that perhaps we may be entering the endemic phase. And yet at the same time, there are cautions. There's murmurs of worries about a new variant of Omicron, for example, as we're recording this. And of course, there are questions if our schools and institutions have learned the right lessons from what we've been through. And I guess I'd say two years and three seasons of this podcast later, it's interesting for us to reflect on why we began in the first place, which was because amidst the fear, the unknown, the trauma we saw the potential for opportunity and we thought something as life-changing as the pandemic might create the space for needed innovations in our K-12 school system. Yes, Michael. And if we're being honest, our hope on that front has ebbed and flowed during the past two years, but we seem to keep coming back to a resilient sense of hope and optimism for what's possible. And so as society really does seem to be moving toward at least a policy based on a post-pandemic state, we're getting to the moment of truth. Will we see change as a result of the pandemic? And if so, you know, what form will it take? We're starting to hear a bunch of perspectives from folks about the changes for which they are advocating. And we keep saying we need to talk about them because at least you and I, Diane, aren't really satisfied with the nuance of the discussions on things like exam schools and various gifted and talented and magnet programs and various things that have flared up over the last couple of years. But I'll also say until now, those have felt a little bit like luxury topics given all everyone has been and continues to go through. It, Michael, it turns out that the list of sort of what we call our hot topics we've been building connects directly to a bunch of reading I've been doing lately that I'm, I, as you know, I'm dying to talk about because I keep pestering you about it. I mentioned it last episode and, and keeping in line with the heart of this podcast, you got really curious and pushed me to bring it on, if you will. So here we are, Michael. I really want to talk about meritocracy. <laughs> well, Diane, I kind of guess that might be the direction you were going given some of the titles you've been reading. Uh, but I also must admit that your slight hesitation has made me wonder because, you know, at face value of all the things that we talk about in the show, the idea of meritocracy might be one of the most universally popular. You know, at least historically speaking, it's an ideology that is as close to universal and equally touted on the left and the right. You know, obviously, there's been some chips, I would say, in the meritocracy <laughs> armor as of late. But I, I would just love to pick your brain on what you've been learning, and in particular, how it can be a framework for us to maybe work our way into some needed nuance on these truly controversial K-12 discussions that are going on around SATs, IQ testing, grading policies, and more. Amazing. I, I'm super grateful, as always. So, um, well, let's get started with a quick inventory of a trio 
of books, aka my reading list, <laughs> that all seek to sort of define the problem of meritocracy, but they all take really different approaches. And then, you know, each of them offer what they see as potential solutions. More on that in a moment. So I'm excited to get to the more in that in the moment, because I will <laughs> confess that I have not read the books. I've read a lot of the reviews, but I've been excited to rely on this conversation with you to learn more. And look, there's certainly more than these three that have come out, but the ones that are driving the conversation over the past two years were first, The Meritocracy Trap by Daniel Markovitz, which was released in 2019. And then Michael Sandel piled on with The Tyranny of Merit in 2020. And then just recently, Adrian Wooldridge uh, countered in 2021, if you will, with The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. And Right off the bat, we'll note that all three of these authors are actually self-proclaimed elites who have personally benefited from meritocracy. Markovitz is a law school professor at Yale. Sandel, of course, is a famous philosophy professor at Harvard. And Wildridge is a journalist at The Economist. And I'm sure they would say, you know, whom better to critique than those on the inside? And as someone, I have to call myself out as well, who has degrees from the universities I just mentioned, I'll just say that it's worth noting, and we can perhaps return to that if it's relevant later. But Diane, you've been reading these books, and you keep saying that you continue to think about them long after you finish. So what is it about these ideas that has you curious and questioning? Well, Michael, as, as you noted, I keep thinking about them. And so after a lot of thought and some incredible conversations with folks who, who've been reading them as well, I, I think I can distill it down to three key things that really have me absorbed. And the first is that these are three very different approaches to talking about meritocracy. You know, Wooldridge takes this historical approach where he sort of lays out the history of it. Um, and then Sandel takes a philosophical approach to it. And he makes this really sort of, um, you know, the, the evolution and history of thought around meritocracy. And then the, the third is a social critique, really. And and yet, what's interesting to me is they all end up with a fairly consistent definition, if you will, of the current problem sort of with and in America's meritocracy. And I personally find their problem definition to resonate with my experience, especially my 25 years of experience in education. And so that sort of commonality there, I found really interesting. Second, across the board, I was deeply disappointed with their proposed solutions. <laughs> you know, they each wrote a book that is meticulously researched and argued where they're building a really compelling case, even in the places where I wasn't always nodding along or agreeing. And then I would get to the end and the solutions they propose are like completely dissatisfying is the nicest word I have for it. And, and there, there might be a few notations in the margins where I'm not super happy about them. And I, I think I've come to believe that none of them are really like qualified or experts at coming up with solutions. Rather, their expertise sort of ends in the identification of the problem, if you will. And so I just think there's a lot of white space for good ideas there. And then finally, at the heart of the three books, and essentially meritocracy, is education. So what you and I care most about literally sets at the center of the belief system that sort of drives everything in our country. And so that is really gripping for me. Wow. So there's a lot there. But you know, I guess nothing you're saying is surprising. But 
I will say it isn't also the first thing I was necessarily thinking about when I've been hearing about this big philosophical debate over meritocracy. And you're making me think that we should perhaps back up a bit here and just take a few minutes to talk about meritocracy itself. What's the quick take on the definition, specifically, though, defined from what you've been reading? It's good. Let's step back. There's three interesting points here that fall into our what, when, and how question categories. So keeping with that tradition of this season, sort of what is it? Um, Well, the basic idea is that people hold power, wealth, and or status based on their ability. Um, and, and this is really easier to understand when you contrast it to getting those things through nepotism, patronage, you know, bribery, corruption, which is actually the way that happened for the majority of history and the majority of places on the planet. And so, you know, that's just the basic idea. My ability actually, you know, is what gets rewarded, if you will. And interestingly, like I just said, this is a new idea um, and new for the world. So much so, I was really surprised to learn that the word meritocracy literally was used for the first time in 1958 by a British sociologist, Michael Young. And so, you know, the world is not used to, you know, earning your wealth and your power. Rather, historically, it's been inherited or bribed or or stolen in a lot of cases. And so, you know, that's kind of this new phenomenon. And then how it actually happens, there's really four parts to a meritocracy in a society. And I think the first part is that the society sort of has pride in the extent to which people can get ahead in life on the basis of their natural talents. And, you know, there's whole stories and mythology around this and like identity around it. And then meritocracies try to ensure a quality of opportunity by providing education for all. So again, that's our key piece where we really come in at the heart of it. The third part is meritocracies should or are designed to forbid discrimination on the basis of race and sex and other irrelevant characteristics. And then finally, it, it awards jobs through open competition versus patriotism, patronage or nepotism, like I've just been saying. So, Diane, that seems to boil a terrifically set of complicated concepts down really neatly. Uh, so first, well done. But that definition checks out from my perspective. And, and I think it's important to put what we've developed against the backdrop of the systems that that sort of preceded our desire to focus on a meritocracy to make sure we're not comparing it to some mythical utopia. And what I mean by that is when you say the alternative is patronage and inheritance or bribery and things like that, that's not something that I would want to return to, right? So I think it's important always to see this against what we've had before. And that said, now, I'll also note that there's a lot of here that feels a little slippery in the definition, you know, first in the sense of like, what's the definition of quote ability, right? How do we measure it? Is there just one kind of ability that matters? And who is to say, you know, college admissions officers, do they get to say? And I'll just quickly add, because I am a believer in capitalism, I'm not sure that the quote market decides is an adequate answer in this particular case, given that the education system that makes many of these sorting decisions is in so many ways pretty divorced from equipping students with the habits, skills, and knowledge that they need to succeed in today's society. Second, and and I think this is where that last part of, of, of that point is going, it's pretty clear, Diane, that 
our education system has historically discriminated in all sorts of ways on the basis of the quote-unquote irrelevant characteristics that are supposed to be separate from ability. And whether that's, you know, the famous soft bigotry of low expectations or historical tracking based on race, or frankly, just the system's failings for so many students given their vast potential in terms of preparing them for the modern world, we're just not giving the vast majority of people, I would argue, a fair shot at developing their natural talents or abilities, to use the word uh, du jour. Yeah, and Michael, you are putting your finger on where these books go. Uh, They really lay out the case for the problems with meritocracy, which you've started to name and which are feel really familiar to so many of us. Uh, What is interesting is that they definitely don't agree on why these problems exist. And so as much as they're all identifying a problem, the the why is very different. And, you know, some of them think it's an implementing without fidelity issue, like we should go harder and better on meritocracy. And others think the design's just totally flawed from the bottom up. And, you know, which makes places where they are aligned even more interesting. So let's take a minute to identify a few of those places of alignment that in particular relate to education. And so the first one is, and I don't think we can emphasize this enough, like this idea of meritocracy is super popular across the political spectrum. And it that was one of the most sort of shocking things for me, because try to think of one thing that the whole political spectrum really agrees on. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really this hard. This is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part, lots of people agree on this. Um, the, the second thing is education systems are now stacked in favor of elites. And so this was universal across the books. Um, you know, this, this springs all sorts of issues. It dramatically reduces mobility and solidifies basically a new aristocracy, if you will, that isn't based on raw, raw talent and hard work, but rather on, you know, parents conferring sort of their status onto their children. It's perhaps the biggest issue here. This idea that parents are doing this and it's so natural. That's what parents do. It's the human thing to try to, you know, give what's best to your children. And so that's a really interesting piece of all of these arguments. The other place where there's agreement is what ends up happening or is happening is that disadvantage is framed in terms of individual defects of of skill or effort. And so basically, quote, non-elites believe their position is their own fault. And elites believe that their position is totally earned. And so you have these two perspectives of like, well, I'm getting what I deserve and you're getting what you deserve, whether it's good, bad, you know, everyone's getting what they deserve, um, which really ignores all these other factors happening. And then the final thing is what, you know, I, I would call the sort of loss of the dignity of work. And that is that anything that isn't sort of the ultra high pain with high value attached to it or requiring really elite credentials isn't valued. Um, And so then most of the work that happens is like, doesn't have dignity to it anymore, which, which you and I have talked about a ton, like having purposeful, meaningful work is one of the the factors of a fulfilled life. Yeah. Yeah. And I I personally have found the sense of superiority and privilege to be one of the more interesting and important critiques of meritocracy to come from the wave of the books. Just sort of that arrogance that has piled up, if you will, among 
people who've played the game uh, and and done well at it in a sense that they're somehow superior. And it's another recognition, though, in my mind that our education system and our society more broadly isn't doing what it's supposed to do, which is to help people understand that all individuals have intrinsic value and worth and something meaningful to contribute from which we can and should learn. And I, I don't want to lay that failure all at the feet of the education system, but I will hearken back to something we've talked a lot about in this podcast, which is that you know education is, as Michael Sandel notes, obsessed with the credentialing function at the expense of the education function. And because of that, it reinforces this notion that education is something to be won, the zero-sum game concept, which then very naturally tells someone like me who, quote, unquote, you know, might win at it and gain selective seats that they're entitled to feel special. It's a very natural emotion and feeling. And given that dynamic, I guess where my head goes is that given the popularity of meritocracy and given the really bad alternatives, it brings to mind, you know, the Churchill quote about democracy being the worst form of government except all the others that have been tried it seems like the path forward is to try to figure out how to make it better in education, which is likely where our hot topics lists intersects with these ideas. But I'm curious how you're thinking about well, it. Well, I do agree with you that it feels impossible and unwise to abandon meritocracy, given the other possibilities. I, I have to confess that I have engaged with several people lately who do not agree. And it's worth just a moment on this, Michael, before we sort of speed ahead. Because you know, the, specifically, there are educators who I think would consider themselves egalitarians in that they don't believe everyone should be the same, but they do believe that nobody is worth more than anyone else. And so what this means is they don't support the equal opportunity with variable outcomes or to win idea, which is you're, you're pointing to is it's problematic, right? So there's good reason for this thinking. Um, they, they really don't like the life is competitive. And so for example, they are interested in policies where every educator in the system, from teachers to principal to superintendent, earn the same pay, or pay is not at all tied to performance, but rather longevity or some other measure like that. And I have to raise these points because these are real conversations happening in real time with real educators. I will note very anecdotally that my own reaction to these ideas, which honestly, it's when confronted with them, I'm a little bit confused and have a little bit of disbelief with the with the sort of policy suggestions, maybe not with the initial part, but then when they get to the solution part. And so what it makes me realize is that while I struggle with a lot of the impacts of our meritocracy, especially in education, I, like many others, have deeply internalized the basic idea that your hard work and skill should be rewarded and that systems that don't incentivize quality work and hard work, you know, end up being pretty demoralizing and defeating. And I mean, I don't know how to say it better, but these are the systems that I don't, you know, in, in the other countries where I don't want to live sort of thing. And so I'm really just sitting with my very visceral reactions and also noticing that all of the folks that I've had these conversations with for what it's worth, are a lot younger than me. And so I'm pushing myself to really try to stay curious and open and at the same time finding that to be a little bit hard. That's really interesting. And when you started out just now, 
I was really excited at what I was hearing, that we ought to value each individual for their differences and belief in their, believe in their worth. And then you went down that line of, well, it means to pay everyone equally and such. And I had a very different reaction, very similar, I suspect, to yours. And I guess that suggests to me that I'm quite comfortable with the economy paying more for scarce talent that provides something that is valued by people in society. You know, that supply and demand, I believe, helps us allocate scarce resources and provide what people need to make progress in their lives. Uh, but I don't always equate value or the notion of self-worth with what someone is then able to earn, perhaps. Like, those are decoupled in my mind. And it's something I'm going to have to think about more, frankly. I don't have an answer out of this. In some ways, it, it's making me realize, Diane, we're both being vulnerable here about what we're wrestling with uh, in, in these concepts almost in real time. Uh, but but it's something I want to wrestle with a little bit more. And that is how this topic sucks you in, Michael, and keeps you thinking about it. <laughs> TikTok's got nothing on meritocracy. <laughs> um, all kidding aside, um, I do like the idea of looking at sort of these this hot topic list, if you will, through the lens of what is challenging with meritocracy and how we might be able to improve it with a third way redesign versus just a sort of one side wins and the other side loses. And most importantly, just like add the nuance to these conversations and the transparency about the roots of some of this stuff to them. And so like one example that pops to my mind, um, uh, you know, rather than being binary, if we think about the exam schools that are all in the news right now in New York and San Francisco and all over, and really what ends it, you know, conversation boils down to, are they bad or good? Are they, you know, do they either stay selective on test scores or are they open to all? What are we actually trying to achieve here? What good are they doing and what potential harm are they doing? And is there a way to improve upon our implementation of meritocracy with a redesign of the policies and systems around these schools? I just want a much more nuanced conversation that actually honors and recognizes some of these ideas we're talking about. Diane, that might be the perfect way to tease our audience and ourselves and end today and set up our next conversation because I've been dying to talk about what's happening with Lowell in San Francisco, Stuyvesant in New York City, TJ in Virginia, and so many others like them. But I think it's a perfect setup for our next episode. And I'm going to say, we haven't talked about this, but I'm going to say I also want to do one on the college admission selectivity process out of this as well, because oh. it feels like those are two distinct gates that are having similar but different sort of mechanics, right, of how you sort students in this elusive concept of meritocracy. And I'd love to dig into both sequentially, perhaps, and, and, and for us to stay curious over the next few weeks as we do so through the frame that you've introduced here. So before we get ahead of ourselves, because I think we could just go down the rabbit hole and start talking about <laughs> both of these, uh, I'm going to back up and just ask, what have you made time to read, listen, or watch anything else besides reading about meritocracy? <laughs> well, uh, Michael, uh, we lived in LA for 10 years. And so it's still in me this time of year. There's always a bit of a flurry in our house as we try to watch as many Oscar nominated films as possible. We can't help it. It's like ingrained. And so we're really, really far behind. But we did manage to catch the best picture nominee, Don't Look Up on Netflix, which was honestly deliciously funny, brilliantly written, and provoked a lot of reflection. Um, and also Spencer, which uh, produced a Best Leading Actress nomination for Kristen Stewart's portrayal of Princess Diana, who was such a big part of my like 
cultural youth. And so this look at her from what I would say is a very different lens than I'd ever experienced with real attention to the issues of mental health, as well as don't kill me meritocracy and aristocracy. It was so in there and so super thought provoking. How about you, Michael? You're going to a place of pop culture that you know I cannot match, Diane. So, I, But I love seeing the Los Angeles in your blood come through. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, I'm going to go a totally different direction today because I've been thinking a lot about the podcasts that my kids listen to and how amazing many of them are. They got to do a Zoom meetup over the weekend uh, with the actors of one of their favorite podcasts uh, called The Adventures of Red Knight. And I was just so taken because it's a family of four, boy, girl, mom, dad, uh, who create this really compelling storyline and they act in it. Uh, They've had over a million downloads and it was just cool for them to hang out over Zoom for two hours with these folks. And then in the next breath, we were well geeking out on what the kids' favorite podcast du jour is, which is called Greeking Out, uh, which is put on by National Geographic Kids. And I just marvel at how during drives in the car or meals or when they're vegging out when they get back from school, the kids are just building a fantastic base of knowledge about, you know, Greek myths, but also those like Norse, Samaritans, and more. And that plus being back in the town library with my kids for the first time this weekend in two years, first time that all of us have been in there together, it just, despite the challenges, it, it felt like, gee, we're lifting up and we do continue to live at a very cool time in history where knowledge is at our fingertips and you can do some really neat things with that. So I guess that's where I'll end this podcast with some optimism and hope that we like to bring. And I'll just thank everyone for listening to us and joining us on Class Disrupted. Disrupted.